we are in Isaiah 11. We've looked at Isaiah 11 for the last four weeks to look at what this promise of the coming Messiah looked like to Isaiah in a time that was without hope, in a time of national collapse, a time of personal collapse. And God gave Isaiah the prophecy 800 years before the birth of Christ of a coming king, a king who would set all things right, who would not fail like the line of David had failed in, in, in compromise and political treaties and faithlessness. And so we have been going through this passage seeing piece by piece of what the Messiah that, that Israel was called to hope for was going to look like. And we have been focused on the coming of the Messiah through the lens of hope. Because just as the world of Isaiah's day was a, a world that was needing hope, because they were a world full of confusion and defeat and despair, so also the world that we find ourselves in as we look at the book of Isaiah is a world in need of hope. Because we live in a world of confusion and defeat and despair. Uh, all you have to do is uh, compare your, your, the, the two you know, major news networks and, and see that we are squawking and screaming that the sky is falling all of the time. All you need to do is look at, at social media to see how much panic and anxiety and, and, and anger is underneath so much of the, the discourse in our country. And as we come to, to Christmas, uh, sometimes as a, it is not a time of peace and joy, but it is a time where, where the fissures in your family seem to just become uh, earthquakes and terrible memories come out and terrible things get said or, or the memories of people who are not there become a dampener to, to the season. And so we live in a time just like Isaiah that needs hope. And the overall theme that we have had as we've looked at Isaiah 11 is that we are the people that God has made in this world to have hope and to share hope. That is what it means that we have the good news of Jesus. And so we have gone through Isaiah 11. In the first uh, week of Advent, we looked at just verse 1, which talked about the, the shoot coming out of the stump. And we, we saw how God gives us surprising hope. Because even as you feel like maybe your life has turned into a stump, your dreams, your wishes, what you thought was going to happen with your life has been cut short. God in his miraculous power brings a shoot out of the stump, which is the promised Messiah, to say that even as defeat comes to you, it does not come to God. And so his hope surprises us. The second thing that we saw as we looked at, at verse 2 was how the Spirit anoints the coming Messiah and does that so that we can know the Messiah confidently because the Messiah is marked by the ministry of the Spirit. And then last week, we looked at how the Messiah is going to be a just ruler, how he's going to reset all things, how he's going to bring equity to the poor and the disenfranchised. And we saw that, that, that this Messiah was going to be a person who was going to bring perfect justice to the earth. He is going to bring what the, the scriptures call the jubilee. 
that has been, been neglected or, or, or passed over again and again in the history of Israel, but it was this promise that God would reset all of the scales, would reset all of the injustices, would set free the slaves, would give back the land that was taken. It was a, a time where justice and joy were married, right? And the Messiah that we hope for is one that is going to give us jubilant hope because he is going to bring righteousness that comes with it joy. Now this week, we look at the last uh, three verses of the passage. These, these verses about wolves uh, laying down with sheep and lions eating straw. And we look at a, a passage that is kind of strange. And I want to finish our look at hope in this message by dwelling upon the fact that the hope that the Messiah brings is truly amazing. We have in the gospel a hope that is amazing. We are going to be told today that the whole creation is blessed by Christ's reign. This flows out of the verses that we just read about the Jubilee. Once righteousness is established, all of creation experiences blessing. In the old Jubilee, the land was given rest for a whole year. And all of the animals in creation were given the gleanings of the crops because they were not to be taken, they were to be left. And so the whole creation is blessed with Jubilee. And when we look at the, 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 the eternal reign of the Messiah, we recognize that the whole creation becomes blessed in the Messiah. Now this text, if we're honest, is, is a challenging text to, to get our mind around. It, it wants us to see the grandeur of the gospel. It wants us to see the, the, the uh, walls knocked off any box that we put in the gospel. It wants us to see that the gospel affects all of creation. And we come across this idea several times in Scripture. Romans uh, chapter 8 uh, says that the gospel affects all of creation. It is the hope of all of creation. When we read these words in, in Romans 8.18, we say, For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. See, Paul is recognizing that uh, the world has been so broken by sin that even nature is not right. And he de de declares that the gospel is such a powerful message that it has within it a redemption of all of creation. So this text wants to show us that. It wants to show us the grandeur of the gospel, the full scale and scope of the gospel. It wants to declare a gospel that is far bigger than the gospel we usually preach, which is a gospel about you and your forgiveness and your salvation. This is a gospel about the whole creation. Do we need that? 
Do we need a, a hope that is truly amazing? I mean, perhaps you have come here today and, and you are a person who have, have, has lost your, your awe. You've lost your awe in the gospel. You've, you've ceased to be amazed. It has been heard again and again so that it is, it is old news. And it doesn't cause your, your mouth to go agape. Perhaps you are here this morning and you have put your eyes on inferior hopes. Perhaps you are here thinking that the hopes of a, of a political deliverance, the hopes of a political election are the, are the biggest things you can hope for. Perhaps you are putting your hopes in a, in a pregnancy test. Perhaps you're putting your hopes in a, a degree or in a relationship or you're putting your hopes in finally getting to retirement. And that's your big hope. So perhaps you are here with your eyes on inferior hopes. Perhaps you are here with your eyes completely blocking any sight of hope, whether, whether it be pain or it be uh, uh, discouragement or it be uh, a condition in your life, like a job loss, or it be uh, a, a, a just pain is causing you to be consumed in focusing on the present and not seeing any hope in it. You see, I think that if we're honest, most of us live with a too small hope. We do not allow the gospel to truly blow the doors off and show us a hope that is amazing. It reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis who, who talks along a similar vein. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, God does not want you like a child playing with mud pies in the slum. He wants you to have your hope on this grand gospel. And that is what he gives us in this passage today. The purpose that I have for us is to grow our hope in Christ's coming kingdom. To grow it to the stature that it deserves. And we will do that through glimpsing three amazing pictures of it given to us in our text. So there are going to be three pictures that we're going to look at of Christ's coming kingdom in Isaiah 6 through 9. Let's, let's look at the first one now. In Christ's kingdom, peace reigns. In Christ's kingdom, peace reigns. So when we think about peace, you know, it's the first wish we're all supposed to tell the genie, right? You know, I wish for, wish for but we don't. We, we somehow find something else to wish for. But, but peace is an ageless desire, an ageless cry. When will there be peace on earth? And as we sit here today, we recognize that there are major conflicts in our world. We, we have any confidence of peace shaken as we look at the news of what's going on in Israel today and the conflict with Hamas. Or when we look at Ukraine and Russia, 
or when we look at any of the statistics of violence in our culture. The idea that there will be peace reigning on earth has become a hope always unfulfilled. It is truly an amazing hope that there will ever be peace on earth. But look at what Isaiah promises us in verse 6. In verse 6, he says that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Now, that is a challenging verse. Uh, I, I will tell you at the top that the way that these verses are read are not in agreement amongst different scholars and biblical uh, uh, students of the Bible. There's there's basically kind of two ways that we deal with a passage like this. We either make it entirely literal, and we say, okay, we're dealing with literal wolves and literal lambs and leopards, and and this is is a a description of exactly what's going to, to happen, so that if we had a camera, we would see this as a picture, a real picture, Right? And then there is the other side of interpretation, which is the figurative interpretation, which is to say that these are kind of metaphorical images for us to grasp a larger truth. And we have to to be honest that Isaiah does not really show his hand on whether we are to take this as a literal description or a figurative description, although I do think that it leans a little bit more towards the figurative than the literal But it's a challenge. It's a challenge to decide what are we supposed to do. And as I have studied and prayed over it, I'm kind of at this place where it's it's actually somewhere in between. It's somewhere in between something literal and something figurative. And the reason I say that is because Isaiah is trying to do something that is just downright impossible. Isaiah is trying to describe a place that we don't know a place that we can't see, and he's trying to do that through things that we do know, right? So so we can't know precisely how much of what he is describing is just a, a, a device to get us to see something we can't see versus something that'll actually be there. Uh, perhaps uh, looking at another example of where the Bible tries to do this is, is the story of the resurrection, So Jesus encountered the Sadducees, and the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. And they were a hyper-literal readers of Scripture. And they had read the the, the Scriptures, the books of Moses, and they found nothing in it that described a resurrection. So they did not believe in a resurrection. And Jesus actually has a debate with them. And he says in in the conclusion of the debate this, Matthew 22, 30, For in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So what the Sadducees did was they they tried to create this logical paradox about the resurrection, which is through marriage. All these marriages are are covenants that are inseparable by God. And and they said, well, what about this person that's married all these people, and then they die? Whose whose husband will this woman be? And Jesus answers, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so he gives this answer, which is very 
confusing. He says the, the, the error in your thinking is that you're being too literal, thinking that, that, that there'll be marriage in heaven, but instead they'll be like angels in heaven, which is kind of like a way of saying you just don't have a clue. What, what the scriptures are doing when they describe the, the heavenly places, the new heavens and the new earth, is they're trying to, to describe something that we cannot see. It's, it's almost like the task of describing color to a, to a blind person. I mean, we are, we are like that when it comes to what is the age to come. One of my favorite scriptures is 1 Corinthians 2.9, which says, It is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So, so Paul is saying, your, your eyes haven't seen, your ears haven't heard, and your imagination has not even glimpsed what is ahead. It is amazing in a way that, that defies your ability to comprehend. So what is a, a, a prophet supposed to do given the task of describing this new age, this new heavens, and this new earth? Well, he, he uses images. He uses images to describe what it looks like or what, what things are going to be like. But even in these images, there are mystery and there are limits to how much we can press those images into making them literal. So, so we live kind of in this tense place where we read Isaiah, 6, uh, Isaiah 11, 6, uh, not like a newspaper, but also not like a fantasy. We try and read these verses uh, according to the meaning that is contained in the images he gives us. And, and we should expect that we only get the smallest glimpse of it. We should expect that the uh, uh, reality is much more amazing than the descriptions itself. So what do we, what do, we do with this wolf and, and this lamb dwelling together and this leopard and the goat being together? Well, what that is describing most basically is enemies, natural enemies, that are now living at peace, right? We're describing enemies that are now at peace. Is, is it animals? Is it peoples? Is it both that, 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 that God is saying is going to be at peace? Uh, what what we're, we're being shown here is that the peace that comes in the kingdom is so extensive that everything that we will see in the age to come will live in peace and harmony. That even the animal kingdom itself will be different because of the reign of Christ. What, what, what Isaiah wants us to see is that the kingdom will have no hostility in it. It will be a place of deep, permanent reconciliation. It will be a place of perfect fellowship. When we are told that the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, we are being told that absolutely every division that has separated people will not exist. We will not have a, any racism or classism or sexism. There will not be divisions or feuds. There will be no predators or prey, no oppressed, no oppressors. That is the meaning of the image. 
And we see this already in seed form in the ministry that Jesus gives us in the Gospels. When he called the 12 apostles, he called a man named Levi who was a tax collector, who was an agent of the state, who grafted the hard-earned money of the people of Israel and gave it to the oppressor. And we also see Jesus calling another apostle named Simon, who is, was of the political party of the zealots, whose sworn constitution was to have no peace with the Romans, to absolutely be at war with anybody that sympathizes with the Romans. And yet Jesus brought a tax collector and a zealot into the same fellowship and made them experience peace with one another. We see Jesus giving feedings to the Jews and feedings to the Gentiles and showing himself as one shepherd over both. So we see Jesus bringing a ministry of peace in his time here on earth. Now note, when we talk about the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, both sides of the divide are in the kingdom, right? It's, it's, it's not just, it's not just the, uh, the sheep that make it in the kingdom. The leopard's there too. So what we're talking about is a, a profound peace. It's not that one side wins between the wolf and the sheep. It's that real reconciliation happens between these two enemies. So the kingdom of heaven will have Jew and Gentile. It will have slave and free, male and female, Democrat and Republican. They will be in the kingdom, but they will be reconciled. What this means is that the gospel, the amazing hope of the gospel is in the gospel, enemies become friends. Enemies become friends. How? Because of Christmas. Listen, when Jesus was born, the angels uh, exploded into the sky to tell the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The message and the power of peace comes with the birth of the Savior. And so peace is found in the good news of Christmas. Christ came to give us peace with God and peace with one another. Here is a summary of the ministry of Christ as a peacemaking ministry from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has, made, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here is how the gospel brings peace. First of all, the gospel brings peace between us and God. Because between us and God is sin. And sin is something that is absolutely incompatible with the holy God. But on the cross, Christ paid for our sins so that we could have peace with God. In Christ, our sins are paid for, and his righteousness is given to us. 
so that we are able to stand before God as a son or daughter of God, fully justified. How does Christ's peace work peace between us? Well, here's what the gospel says of every single one of us. But by the grace of God, I would be a wretch. But by the grace of God, I would be judged. But by the grace of God, I would be condemned. But by the grace of God, I would be an enemy of God. That is what you are outside of the gospel. And so what we learn inside the gospel is that we are all creatures of grace. And if we are all creatures of grace, what bragging and what divisions can we honestly wage against one another? If God justifies me, who's left to justify you? And so when we recognize that everybody in the kingdom of God is there by grace, the only thing that we can do in living out the gospel is see everyone with grace and see everyone with the lens of Christ's peace upon them. And so, when we look at this coming kingdom, peace reigns. But the second thing that we we see when we get into this passage is that in Christ's kingdom, creation is renewed. And we look at verses 7 and 8, where where the passage gets, in some ways, stranger. Isaiah says, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now, what is so strange about this is perhaps perhaps we could create a situation where we could see a wolf and and a lamb lying down together, but to see a lion eating straw is is impossible. Lions do not have the digestive system to eat straw, right? So, so what, what is going on here? Is this, is this a description of, of, a, of a change of nature in the lions or the lions that exist in heaven different than the lions that we have today? Maybe. I, I don't know. I, I really don't want to press the details that hard. Uh, I think that there is a, a safer route to take by, by looking at the fact that grazing and feeding with straw are both uh, acts of domestication. Uh, you, you, you give a, an animal a, a land to graze, like you give your cows, and you prepare straw to feed your animals. These are animals that are now living at peace with humanity. If you go back up to verse 6, you see that that, that, uh, Isaiah says a child is leading these different wild animals, which is a shepherding term. So what I think is is a safe conclusion is that uh, Isaiah is describing the animal kingdom living under dominion again as it was designed at the beginning of the Bible. So when you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, you read this. And God blessed them, our first parents. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, the command that was given to our first parents was to have dominion. 
to rule over the entire animal kingdom. And I think what Isaiah is doing here is he is describing an animal kingdom that has become compliant to our dominion. An animal kingdom that is now not afraid of man. Man is no longer a threat. And so there is a harmony between the animal kingdom and, and humanity. So I, I'm a dog lover. And uh, uh, I have just marveled at how dogs have been smarter than every other animal out there. I mean, they have hacked human beings. Dogs don't have to worry about food. They don't have to worry about shelter. They don't have to worry about affection. They don't have to worry about warmth. We just heap it upon them, and they give us nothing. I mean, they do nothing, but we just give it to them. And dogs used to be wild, ferocious animals, right? Dogs used to be wolves. They used to be scary. We didn't want anything to do with them. But somehow, a relationship has been forged. And so my imagination goes in this direction. What if that potential is in every animal? What if that potential comes out in the, in the kingdom to come where all creatures are loving and compliant and in harmony with humanity? What if, what if dogs are just the beginning? That is what, what I think is, is on display here. What an amazing hope. Look at, look at verse 8, how, how pervasive this goes. It says, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. I mean, that is a scary image. Any mom or dad thinking of their kid playing near a cobra is tensed up. But what's the, what's the message there? The, the cobra and the viper, they represent what is frightening. They represent the, the danger that nature provides. And yet we are seeing that the viper and the cobra presents no danger to humanity in the kingdom to come. In the kingdom to come, there is such harmony between man and the animal kingdom that a baby can play without fear amidst poisonous, venomous snakes. I mean, what this is describing is literally amazing hope. It's like, I don't even know what to think about that. It's, it's startling. But the image that creation is renewed is being given to us in these compelling pictures Now, when we look at Jesus' ministry, we see that, that this began again in seed form when he walked the earth. Christ's rule brings back the world that Adam lost. Look at some of the images that are in the Gospels. First of all, his, his very first night on earth, where was he put? He was laid in a manger, and around a manger are lots of animals. Right? He was laid in a manger. His first night, he slept amongst the animals. Right? There's a, there's a really charming Christmas movie called The Star. Has anybody seen The Star? It's not great, but it's, it's, it's charming. And its whole perspective is to take the animals that were in the nativity and imagine what the nativity was like for them. But it, it, it opens your eyes to the good news for all of creation that the nativity is supposed to be. And so if, for that respect, I really delight in it. When you go into the Gospel of Mark, after he is baptized, we are told that he is driven out into the wilderness to be with the wild beasts. 
And then a couple weeks ago when we were looking at uh, another passage in Mark, we looked at this cartoon. And I think this cartoon actually provides some uh, amazing insight of the ministry of Jesus. There are a lot of animals in Jesus' ministry, right? A lot of animals were involved in Jesus' ministry. You have the camel who brought him gifts, and uh, you have the, the little fish who gave him uh, taxes, and you have the dove uh, who uh, came down at his baptism, and you have the sheep who made him warm, and you have the cows who give him uh, quenches thirst. And then, of course, it ends with the pig saying, uh, and I'm going to run off a cliff uh, with demons and die. So, I mean, the, the pig kind of got the short end of the, of the deal there. But, but I do think it's amusing how many animals are part of the ministry of Jesus? And they all, they all work. I think, I think what, what I'm trying to get at is that Jesus' advent is the beginning of all creation being renewed. That is what the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. He says, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he is taking that commandment that we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and he is seeing Jesus as the man who truly fulfills the dominion of creation. And we know that Jesus is that man because he has received the first thing, the crowning of glory and honor promised to that man. And so because he has received the crowning of glory and honor, we know it is only a matter of time before Jesus fulfills the entire mandate and brings creation under his dominion. So, what does this tell us? I mean, whether you're, you're tracking with me about all these interesting animals or not, what the text is, it, is saying at minimum is that the good news of the gospel is far bigger than what, what you maybe are holding in your mind. It is far bigger than a simple message of forgiveness. It is far bigger than the promise of everlasting life. It includes that, yes, but the gospel is the message, not just of a new you. It is a message of a new creation. A creation that is rid of sin and death and pain. A creation where all animals are as sweet and lovely towards us as a dog is. The, the gospel promises an amazing hope. Christmas is good news for all who long to see the world set free from corruption. What is that corruption for you? Is it pain? Is it sickness? Is it hatred? Is it, is it fear? Is it poverty? What, whatever is the corruption in this creation that, that destroys your heart, the promise we have in Christmas is bigger than that. All things will be made new. 
because Christ has come. So let me say this to you pastorally. Whatever bad news may be in your world, the good news is bigger. The good news is bigger. So how do we live in this hope of new creation? How do we live in it? Well, it begins with knowing our creator. And that is what the third picture of the kingdom of Christ gives us. In Isaiah 11.9, we see in Christ's kingdom, God dwells with us. In Christ's kingdom, God dwells with us. Look at Isaiah 11.9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, this is the climax of it all. This is, this is why the earth exists. It exists to be covered with image bearers who have knowledge of the Lord. In this passage, earth again has become God's dwelling place because it is described as my holy mountain. The earth is my holy mountain, which is a way of saying that God has taken up his residence again here in the earth. Now, since the fall, there has been a separation between God and man. Sin and holiness they don't go together. Sin and holiness are like darkness and light. Once the light is turned on, the darkness disappears. And so we are told God is light. And so his grace and mercy has meant that he has kept himself veiled from us to a certain measure so that we were not destroyed completely in the presence of his holiness. But we are told here in verse 9 that his holy mountain is on the earth. His presence, his radiance, his glory is unveiled. It's undiminished. And there are countless people surrounding him. So we are being shown the great final picture of the new heavens and the new earth. God in the midst of his people. How does that happen? How does that happen? This is one of the things that makes the reading of the Old Testament prophets tantalizing. It's because they're given pictures, but they're not given the whole picture. We're told like in, um, I think it's in 2 Peter, that, uh, or maybe it was 1 Peter, that the prophets long to look into their own prophecies to try and see when these things will happen. So Isaiah here gives us a picture, kind of like a picture up high but he doesn't show us the ladder that gets there, right? He doesn't show us how that happens. All we are told is that the, 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 this place is a place where the knowledge of the Lord fills the earth as the waters fill the sea. What we know that Isaiah was not yet aware of is that the Messiah would come to to bridge the gap between this picture and our reality. You see, what we learn in Christ 
is the answer to our sin problem. What we learn in Christ is the way of reconciliation to God. We find in Christ the place that God and man can dwell together. So, that's that's the good news of Christmas. That's the good news of Christmas. God, who could not dwell with man, gave us a way that we could dwell with him by sending us his son, Jesus. And that is what we remember on Christmas. Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or John says in his prologue, chapter 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, what what brings this dwelling of God and man together is the great story of Christmas, the incarnation that the Word became flesh, that the Holy One was born of the Virgin, that He was named Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas is the story of God entering our world by becoming a human. It is because God has come to us in Jesus that we can know God personally, that we can know Him without fear, that we can know Him and enjoy Him that we can dwell with him on his holy mountain. Isaiah 11.9 is basically a marvelous promise, a marvelous declaration. Isaiah 11.9 declares that all who trust in Jesus have this amazing hope. Have the hope of dwelling with God. Have the hope of living in the new creation. Have the hope of being where peace reigns. Those who know Jesus have Christ's kingdom. So look at at Romans 8 again that we looked at as we were uh, starting. The whole creation is looking at all who trust in Jesus, all who the Bible calls the sons of God, and says, our day is coming. Our day of freedom is coming. A creation-wide jubilee is coming because the sons of God, those who have the knowledge of the Lord, are filling the earth. And it is only a matter of time before they cover the earth as the water covers the sea. And then all of creation is free. What does this mean? We are people of amazing hope when we make our life about knowing him and making him known. How can we know this amazing hope will come to pass? How do we know that that this passage isn't just fantasy. Because we already have Advent. We already have Christmas. 
This is the good news of, of Advent. The hope of everything that I have said, that everything that Isaiah has revealed, has already begun. The Lord who brings the kingdom has been born. His name is Jesus. And so the key question, do you know him? Do you know him? Can you be counted today as one who has the knowledge of the Lord, who will dwell with God on his holy mountain? Do you know him? The gift of knowing him is made simple. In John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, that all who believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The good news of the gospel is if you put your faith in Jesus, if you say, I know him as the savior of my life. I know him as the ransom for my sins. I know him as my Lord. That you will pass from the fate of those who perish to those who have everlasting life and a renewed creation where peace reigns and God dwells. Do you know him? Amen.